Chapter Sixteen of Sir Titus Salt, Baronet: His Life and Its Lessons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Sir Titus Salt, Baronet: His Life and Its Lessons, by Robert Belgarni. Chapter Sixteen. Whoe'er amidst the sons of reason, valor, liberty, and virtue displays distinguished merit, is a noble of nature's own creating. Such have risen, sprung from the dust, or where had been our honors? Thompson How vain are all hereditary honors, those poor possessions of another's deeds! unless our own just virtues form our title and give a sanction to our good assumptions surely in a former chapter reference was made to the circumstances that rendered removal from crow nest necessary we have now to advert to the return of mr salt and his family to their old home the mansion at methley notwithstanding its internal beauty and surrounding attractions had certain drawbacks it was twenty miles from salt air and therefore inconveniently distant from business it was isolated from those means of social and intellectual enjoyment to be found in proximity to a large town moreover several members of his family now possessed houses of their own so that such a large establishment as methley seemed unnecessary when therefore it was ascertained that crow nest was to be sold no time was lost in effecting its purchase great was the joy of the family when he returned one day with the news that crow nest was now his own for around that spot their affections had lingered and to go back to it was to them like going home happily no difficulty was experienced in relinquishing the lease of methley inasmuch as the present lord mexborough had succeeded his father and was fortunately in a position to occupy the seat of his ancestors such was the mutual desire to meet each other's wishes and his lordship's personal gratitude to mr salt for the improvements on his estate that when the valuers appointed had finished their task both parties were fully satisfied with the result farewell then to methley where so many interesting events had occurred some of which have been already woven into this memoir but when the time of departure came shadows of regret seemed to flit across the mind of the outgoing tenant and at the last social party within its walls he remarked to a friend what a pity to leave it all the return to crowness took place in december eighteen sixty seven and henceforth it is associated with mr salt's declining years and with the final scene of all when his remains were borne to their last resting-place it is superfluous to say that the name crow nest must have been originally derived from the fact that crows once built in the neighboring trees but strange to add no evidence of it had existed for many years previously the old trees still stood near the mansion but their black-feathered visitors had long since disappeared. 
surely they must have had a secret grudge against some former owner and after their own fashion had handed down from one generation to another a warning to avoid the place the new proprietor regretted this exceedingly and was evidently desirous to allure them back for he caused decoy nests to be placed and when the birds at last condescended to come near they found not only a welcome on the trees but also on the ground where food had been abundantly scattered the device was successful a large colony of crows soon settled there so that the propriety of the name has become once more self-evident the pleasure mr salt derived from watching their industrious habits and from hearing their noisy palavers was ample compensation for his pains perhaps a stranger visiting crow nest for the first time would say the second part of the name must have been derived from its position it is built in a hollow and when seen from the principal approach has the cosy appearance of a nest the mansion is of hewn stone and consists of the centre portion with a large wing on either side connected by a suite of smaller buildings in the form of a curve it is the front or north side that is given in the illustration but this is not by any means the most striking the south side presents a landscape of secluded beauty in which wood and lake lawns and terrace flower gardens and statuary delight the eye the conservatories are also situated on the south side in a line with the mansion and are so lofty and extensive as to almost dwarf its appearance the central conservatory is more spacious than the others and contains in a recess an elaborate rockery and cascade of french workmanship which were objects of great attraction at the paris exhibition the lake was constructed after mr salt's return and affords another illustration of his fine eye for the beautiful and picturesque in nature it is of uniform depth well stocked with fish and aquatic birds the latter finding shelter on the island in the middle the vineries pineries and banana house are situated at a considerable distance from the mansion we have previously stated that mr salt took great delight in the cultivation of fruits and flowers but the banana was his special favorite at crow nest and it attained dimensions rarely met in this country as luxuriant foliage immense height and gigantic clusters of breadfruit more resemble those of a tropical than of a temperate clime let us enter the mansion itself on the right hand of the entrance hall stands a colossal bust presented by the workpeople in eighteen fifty six close to which is the business room so called because it was used for the reception of visitors who called upon him for the transaction of business or deputations for the presentation of appeals etc on the left hand is the morning room where he usually sat with his family and from which a door opens into the spacious library which is the largest and handsomest room of all in the library is a beautiful bust of mr salt sculpted in white marble this is the last delineation of his features which have been well brought out by the artist mr adams acton the dining drawing and billiard rooms are furnished with exquisite taste and this is the scene to which mr salt retired to spend the evening of his life 
as the removal of the family in 1858 caused much regret in the neighborhood, so their return in 1867 created unwanted joy, which was expressed in an address of welcome back. It took a considerable time ere Crow Nest assumed its present aspect. The whole estate required much expenditure, both of thought and money, but it was now in the hands of the proprietor whose delight was to plant and to build not only for the sake of necessity and comfort, but in the gratification of a refinement of taste peculiarly his own. His time was henceforth spent between private occupations at home and occasional business engagements at Saltaire, which were broken at intervals by visits to his married children, the seaside or the metropolis. Let us take one day's occupation at Crow Nest as a specimen of many. The hour of breakfast is eight o'clock, but before that time he has made his first appearance in the dining-room, where the lion's share of the post-bag awaits him, containing, for the most part, applications from various parts of the country, and from all sorts and conditions of men, for pecuniary aid. Perhaps one half of them are appeals for building churches or schools, or for the liquidation of debts upon them. The other half has a variety of wants to be made known. One institution is restricted in its usefulness by want of funds, and much needs a helping hand. A widow is destitute, and the family cast upon the world. A young man wishes to go to college. A literary man is bringing out a book and wants it circulated. A deputation hopes to be allowed to present a pressing case. All these letters he briefly scans, but they are afterwards to be carefully perused and respectively answered. After breakfast, the household assembles for morning prayer. The head of the house slowly reads a portion of sacred scripture with much impressiveness. Then prayer is solemnly read from the altar of the household. Thus the day is begun with God, and when evening comes it is closed in the same manner. Now the family separate to their respective duties. His occupation today is to answer the numerous letters that have arrived. In this important business, his eldest daughter is his confidential secretary, which post she ably filled until the time of her marriage. That the office was not an easy one, we can testify from the experience of a single day. It happened at Scarborough, when he was there alone, and in order to relieve him from the burden, we undertook the duty of scribe but we never had a wish to do so again. If the letters written at this dictation were illegible, slightly blotted, or loosely expressed, this was fatal to their acceptance, and the workmanship, which we had imagined worthy of commendation, had to be improved. The experience thus gained enabled us to understand the nature of the work that had often to be done at Crow Nest by his sympathizing and willing amanuensis, who often expressed her father's wishes and intentions in such a felicitous and kindly manner as to enhance greatly the value of the gift she conveyed. Every letter received was judged on its own merits. The shorter and more concise the epistle, the greater were its chances of a favorable answer. Of the majority of applications sent, he knew personally nothing but he had a shrewd insight which enabled him to measure men 
whether they expressed themselves in speech or writing, and though he was occasionally deceived, he would still give the applicant the benefit of a doubt and himself the luxury of rendering help rather than return an absolute refusal. Many of these letters received answers with checks for various amounts, but frequently with conditional promises, as, for example, if the debt of a church were extinguished in a year, he would give the last one hundred pounds, or if a church were commenced in a given locality, his donation would be the first. In this way he sought to stimulate effort in others, and seldom did the condition he imposed remain unfulfilled. Sometimes, when he wanted further information in connection with an application, he wrote to some well-known person in the neighborhood, or it was reserved for the opinion of some friend who was likely to know the facts of the case. Thus his gifts were not scattered indiscriminately, but care was taken to bestow them on worthy recipients. Persons unacquainted with Mr. Salt sometimes erred in asking the aid of a mediator to recommend their case, which, when done, was generally of little avail. For in doing good he preferred being influenced rather by the facts of the case than by any personal recommendations. Was not such benevolence governed by commendable motives? But, as we have said, most of the objects of his generosity must remain a secret. Yet there are some instances which could not well be hid, even when done in a corner. When the lunatic asylum for the northern counties was established at Lancaster, he gave a donation of five thousand pounds. The charities of Bradford had a large share of his sympathy. One instance stands out from the rest in connection with a local infirmary. He had been asked to contribute towards a temporary building as a fever hospital, but to the surprise of the committee, a letter was received from him offering to give five thousand pounds. It is said the letter was handed from one to another, accompanied by the remark, There must have been some mistake here. He cannot mean to give such a sum for this temporary hospital. But when it was put into the hands of Mr. Charles Seaman, he replied, There is no mistake about it. This means a new building, not a temporary one. Mr. Seaman's own generous heart rightly interpreted that of the donor, and the convalescent home recently erected at Ilkley remains a memorial to his own liberality. A friend thus writes, Mr. J. Key was killed by the upsetting of the Gransington coach, leaving a widow and three children. I wrote to Mr. Salt about it, and received a kind letter requesting me to call at his warehouse in Bradford. To my astonishment, he handed me a check of one hundred pounds. In answer to another application from me on behalf of a village church, I received the following note from Miss Salt. My father wishes me to acknowledge your letter of yesterday, and to say he will be glad to give one hundred pounds towards a schoolroom at Brown Royd. Thus, from his home at Cronest, he was a center of influence and usefulness which were felt far and wide. But what shall be said of the hospitality which he shewed to ministers and missionaries who were privileged to sojourn under his roof? Among these the names of David Livingstone and Robert Moffat may be mentioned. In connection with the latter, an interesting circumstance occurred. 
During a missionary tour in the neighborhood, Cro'nest was his home. On the evening of his departure a dinner took place, at which Mr. Samuel Morley, M.P., was present. The conversation turned on the honored guest, who had left that very day, and the noble life he had consecrated to the work of God in Africa. A subscription to buy him a house was proposed around the dinner-table, which amounted to seven hundred fifty pounds. When the act of this generous company became known, the subscription was taken up and enlarged by other friends of missions, and ultimately reached the sum of three thousand pounds. Thus the veteran missionary was placed in a position of independency during his remaining days. Dr. Moffat cherished an affectionate gratitude for his generous host, which was touchingly exemplified shortly before the latter died. We had written to say that we had been drawing him up and down the terrace in an invalid's chair, to which he replied, I envy you the honor, and I wish I had the privilege of performing such an office for him whom I respect and love. It was while thus busily engaged in benefiting his fellow men that Mr. Salt received the offer of a baronetcy from the Queen by the hands of the Prime Minister. The following is a copy of the letter conveying the honor. Ravy Castle, Darlington, September ninth, 1869 Dear Sir, I have received authority from Her Majesty to propose that by her favor you should receive a baronetcy, and I trust that it may be agreeable to you to accept such a distinction. Though we have not been fortunate to keep you within the precincts, perhaps I ought to say, the troubled precincts of parliamentary life, you have not failed by your station, character, and services to establish an ample title to the honorable distinction which it is now my gratifying duty to place at your disposal. I beg to remain, dear sir, your very faithful and obedient servant, W. E. Gladstone. Titus Salt, Esquire. This honor was so unexpected, and, coming as it did, through the hands of one whom he regarded as the greatest living statesman, he hardly knew what answer to return. The advice of several friends was unfavorable to his acceptance. Some thought that a higher distinction, that a baronetcy, was his due, others that, as the name of Titus Salt was that around which the affections of the community gathered, the proposed title would not enhance that name, but rather break its spell. Amid this diversity of opinion, how could he do otherwise than to act upon his own judgment, which finally led him to accept the proffered honor? Henceforth, the subject of this memoir is designated Sir Titus Salt. Among the numerous letters of congratulation addressed to him on the occasion, ones from the residents of the neighborhood may be transcribed. To Sir Titus Salt, Baronet, we, the undersigned, desire to present our sincere and hearty congratulations on the distinguished mark of royal favor bestowed by our sovereign in conferring upon you the dignity of a baronetcy of the United Kingdom. We cannot but regard this gracious act of Her Majesty as an honor to the district in which you reside, and as a proof of her deep interest in the commercial prosperity of her kingdom, a prosperity which has been materially promoted by your persevering and successful labors 
in connection with the manufactories of this locality. As a citizen and a public benefactor, the honorable distinction so graciously conferred has been most deservedly earned. While your sympathy with every good cause and your unbounded liberality have gained for you the respect and esteem of all classes. As friends and neighbors, we hail with gladness your return to your former residence amongst us, and would respectfully convey to Lady Salt and yourself the expression of our sincere esteem and our earnest hope that you may be spared many years to enjoy the honors of your exalted station and the still higher satisfaction of continuing to do good. December, 1869. Signatures. But his elevation to the rank of baronet could not raise him higher in public opinion, nor did it in any way affect the simplicity of his character. The title changed nothing in the man. The rank is but the guinea stamp, the man's the god for all that. From this point in his history, may we not look back and mark the several steps that have led up to it? Think of him as a child, riding the wooden horse on the pavement at Morley, as the schoolboy trudging to Batley, or jogging on a donkey from Crofton to Wakefield, as a youth not remarkable for ability, but rather regarded as dull, as the young man coming to Bradford and beginning wool-sorting at the ruse's works, as the wool-stapler pushing his way in business, as the manufacturer striking out new paths of commercial enterprise, as the founder of a town, which for its beauty of situation and its moral and educational advantages stands unrivaled, as the chief magistrate of the borough of Bradford and its representative in the Senate, as the philanthropist, who sympathized with humanity in all its sufferings and conflicts, as the generous benefactor, whose helping hand was not restricted by religion, politics, or nationality, but extended to the most deserving, as the possessor of great wealth and influence, seeking retirement for the rest of his days, and now the baronet, raised to the dignity by his sovereign. Is not such a career worthy to be studied and, as far as possible, imitated by young men generally? He dreamt not of fame, yet he acquired it. He sought not honors, yet they came. He was unswerving in his religious and political principles, and hence he was respected by his fellow men. He lived not for himself, but for others, and hence the reverence attached to his name. His commercial enterprise brought wealth and honor to the nation, which was recognized by the sovereign and endorsed by the prime minister. He honored God, and to him was fulfilled the promise of old, Them that honor me, I will honor. It has sometimes been the case in the history of nonconformity that persons attaining to wealth and social position have waxed either cold in their attachment or turned away from the church of their fathers. It was not so with Sir Titus Salt. His principles were too deeply rooted to wither in the sunshine of worldly prosperity. He regarded the nonconformity of England as that which had done much to promote evangelical religion, 
both at home and abroad, to advance social and religious liberty, and to give bone and muscle to the national character. To turn away from it would, therefore, have done violence to his deepest convictions. Sir Titus Salt, with his family, regularly attended the Congregational Church at Lightcliffe. The history of this church is connected with the times of 1694, when service was conducted in a private house, and when nonconformity was associated, in the minds of many, with disloyalty and revolution. Yet even then, several of the leading families in the neighborhood were in hearty sympathy with its principles and aims. The place of worship at Lightcliffe was a very humble one, and had rather the appearance of a conventicle. Yet even the walls were dear to the congregation, for when they resolved to erect a new church, the old sanctuary was converted into schoolrooms. In the erection of this church, Sir Titus Salt and his family took the warmest interest. The cornerstones of the edifice were laid by two of his daughters. He was the chairman of the building committee, and the principal contributor to the fund. The church is a prominent object in the village, conspicuous from a distance and its spire an object of beauty from the windows of Crownest. Its style is Gothic. It has a public clock, a peal of bells, and a manse. The Reverend J. Thompson has been, for thirteen years, the esteemed pastor. The opening of the church in 1871 was a memorable event at Crownest. On that occasion, the Reverends Thomas Biney, Thomas Guthrie, D.D., Newman Hall, LLB, and others were invited to take part in the opening services and to be the guests of Sir Titus. With such a group of distinguished men, the social circle could not fail to be interesting, though now the remembrance of it is overshadowed by the thought that the host and two of the principal guests are no more. Yet the week spent then was a very bright one, Mr. Biney and Dr. Guthrie were full of wit and anecdote, while Sir Titus was all ear to listen. One day at dinner, Biney having asked for a boiled mutton, it was handed to him with caper sauce, to which it appeared he had a great aversion. On sending it back, the host inquired what was the matter. "'Oh, nothing,' rejoined Guthrie. "'It's only Biney cutting capers.' In the public luncheon on the opening day, Dr. Guthrie vindicated the right of ministers to receive stipends adequate to their labor and position. Some persons in Scotland, he said, demur to this, because in primitive times ministers had not even a house, but wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. I asked them how they would like to see Candlish and me walking along the streets of Edinburgh in sheepskins and goatskins, horns and all. On the following day, the guests went with their host to Saltair, and it was arranged that they should be there at the dinner hour when the people were leaving work. What a tide of human beings swept through the gates when the clock struck twelve! Dr. Guthrie stood watching them in amazement. He was particularly struck with their clean and cheerful appearance, but, most of all, with the fact that their attention in passing was not directed to the strangers, but to their master who was there also looking on. Dr. Guthrie was deeply interested in everything he saw, and had a kind word to say to the workpeople whom he met. 
one of these was a boy of about fifteen years of age he questioned him on educational subjects and then gave him five shillings to purchase a book when the boy was afterwards told that the donor was dr guthrie he was greatly delighted for he exclaimed i take in the sunday magazine the church at saltair was a special object of admiration to all on the south side is the entrance to the mausoleum there stood sir titus pointing his friends to the place where his children slept and where too he expected to be laid when his work was done little did he think that guthrie Biney and himself would in a few short years be gathered to their fathers another afternoon was spent at the crosley orphanage in halifax where dr guthrie with much tenderness addressed the young people in reference to their future course and commended them all in prayer to the father of the fatherless but if there was any circumstance more hallowed than another in the retrospect of those few days past a crow nest it was the morning and evening worship in the family then the prayers of those saintly men seemed to lift us all near to god so that the place was bethel but the opening of the church did not end with the services for adults perhaps the most impressive of the series was the one arranged for the young sir titus took his place amongst them and was so deeply touched by the scene around him that he wept like a child especially when they sang the well-known hymn which concludes thus soon we'll reach the shining river soon our pilgrimage will cease soon our happy hearts will quiver with the melody of peace End of chapter sixteen